As the World Cup in France later this year approaches, question marks still remain over who will start at fly half. England tried four different 10-12 combinations over the course of the Six Nations with varying degrees of success. And we've got a great special guest for you today giving his view on the conundrum. Joining me, Chris and Brendan, is former England fly half Ollie Barkley. We hope you've had a good week. Quite simply, there's one thing very firmly on the agenda today, and that's the age-old England fly-half debate. Um, Farrell versus Smith was a question that yielded different answers from different people over the Six Nations and has done so for the last three years or so. And we've been meaning to debate it, but we're waiting for a fitting special guest. And we've got one today joining me, Chris and Brendan, in former England fly-half, Ollie Barkley. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you, mate. How are you all? Good, we're good. So... You just told us you're calling us from Bath. What are you up to nowadays? I've been in property for the last sort of five years when I finished playing. I started a company about 10 years ago. I went sideways into that when I finished. And then um, I started uh, a charity with a guy that you might all know called Ed Jackson, called the Millimeters to Mountains Foundation, um, about four or five years ago now, which is going great guns and um, is doing some pretty cool stuff. He's currently crossing Iceland. Um, absolute header that he is, unassisted. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, he's constantly doing stuff that his, makes his wife worry about him and question their relationship weekly, I think. <laughs> um, but he's, yeah, that's that's been amazing. We've, we've done a lot of stuff there. And then two years ago, uh, me and Ed also started a, um, a rum company, a rum brand, um, which we're about to launch in two months time which has been very exciting we've got a team of about 12 of us now so that's growing quite quickly and um we're doing some really really exciting stuff there so that that's going to be mostly happening in london so that's why i'm moving to london tomorrow to uh, to go full-time with uh vapora it's called so it's my, my life is very different now i don't um i very very rarely pick up an oval ball um i very rarely see an oval ball unless it's on tv um but i like it it's sort of it's very different from the way I used to live life but it's uh, the diversity and the variety is something that really appeals to me and I, I like doing quite creative stuff of things like um involved with music and events and, and sort of the brand stuff around so yeah a very a big big difference from from the old days but I, I yeah I really enjoy life at the moment and the variety and and the more the more sort of level pace of things away from selection and um injuries is welcome yeah, that's a good mixture, Ollie, isn't it? The um, the, the run and the housing and the, and the property. So you've actually so when people find that they can't get on the property ladder, you give them something to take the take the blues away. Very nice. Or, or or if they don't want to buy it, you get them really drunk and then they end up do buy it. They're buying it for the right price. So either way, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, either way you win. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the property property has like to be honest with you, has been has been a bit of a. Uh, I've, I've, I've worked very hard in the last five years, but I've taken more of a back seat with it now and I've put it back all under management um, just because mate, it's just, it's, it's quite stressful and I want to be able to concentrate more time and um, take more of an approach I have with rugby really, where I was like very singular, very focused. I had one or two things going on in my life and they would dedicate real time and love to it. And that's kind of where I feel with the rum now. It's just to not, not distract my life with lots of other bits in the periphery and just one concentrate on a couple of things rather than have four things flying around. Do you have ma- do you have as many properties as Mike Cap? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's old school. <laughs> he's old hat. Games games changed now. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie, how do you start a rum company? Because obviously, you know, rum is a sort of inherent uh, alcoholic drink, mainly for the West Indies, I understand. Do you invent a new rum or do you find uh, a little known rum and 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 dive in and, and parachute in and market that? I mean, that's how did it happen? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, mate. One we've actually not been asked in its origin before, but um, a, lot, a lot of rums, whether they're premium or quite, you know, basic or quite um, entry level, most of them will, will go to the islands, they'll find either a distillery or a number of distilleries and bring together different batches and ages to make their own version of a rum, but essentially it's already been made in those distilleries. They then might they might combine some colours and some additives and some of the um, stuff you get on the shelves these days that's sort of got all manner of flavours in it. And so that, but we wanted to do something that was quite different. We wanted to do something that was made in England, 
that was distilled in in the old hat way and copper pot stills because you get a much 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 cleaner heavier uh mouth on the liquid um and then all our botanicals are grown uh we, we source them all naturally from around like the best places depending on the season but it's all done in england which is really rare um and we are so let's but we actually started out from scratch to be honest it taken us about a year and a half with this uh bit of a he's, a, he's actually a sort of appeal to you chewy we do, we're doing it with a doctor of yeast <laughs> he has a doctorship in yeast that is an actual, a well, is well, an actual thing well it's more relevant than latin isn't it yeah man, exactly exactly and who, who would have thought that um yeah, but he's, he's but he's working with him has been pretty pretty incredible. Like understanding the processes and tweaking it and stuff. So now we have a a very um, I mean, in our opinion, a very special tasting bottle of rum, which has been distilled a number of like it, it's quite a proprietary process. So we've we've made we've made sure that there is there's no bullshit around how it's been made and um, how it's been branded. So yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about it. We put a lot of time and love into it. It's not just been a do it in your back garden, get over from the island, stick a label on it and get it out on the shelves. It's been a bit more than that. So, from so that an English rum, you can put the old George Cross on it or whatever. It's made in England, drunk in England. It's made in England. Yeah, it's called it's called Vapora, which is named after an English moth, uh, which is native to England. Uh, and there's, there's, there's a bunch of symbology around the moth. But yeah, the Vapora moth is is native to England and does loads of cool shit. I mean, when, when, when we research moss, you can work there. Yeah, they are ridiculously cool creatures. <laughs> Pretty funky stuff. Yeah. This is a conversation I never thought I'd have with you. Yeah. <laughs> there, 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 there is a specialist rum bar in Bath, isn't there? Is that where you got the idea, Ollie, by any chance? No, no mate. They, I've been, they've been there. They're very good there, actually. We actually we took our liquid into them to, to, to trial it during some of the testing periods. But, um, mate, it just started, I mean, just, honestly, we, I've always loved rum popped up uh we drank a lot of it like a lot of people did well a lot of other stuff during lockdown and i uh, started to just just really enjoy it and sort of become quite interested in it and then um it was a kind of a time as well where like a few people were like were struggling in our group that were like for various reasons the lockdown and work and and family and relationships and stuff and the moth was, was a sort of a symbol of like better Sort of transformation and positive change and the rest of it so we've noticed we started to see it pop up loads more in like in like high-end restaurants and on cocktail menus so i had some mates in diageo and said look i'm noticing this happening are you seeing the same the same thing and they're like yeah yeah we we think the premium is like premiumization of rum is is about to happen like the next couple of years gin's having had its time tequila's yeah. having its time mezcal and we think rum's about to have its time so we uh we thought fuck it, let's give it a whack. Good man. You said Vapora, didn't you? Vapora, yeah, V O yeah, V A P O U R A. Okay, I've never heard of the moth myself, um, but obviously we'll keep an eye out out for that. Uh, you're not the first guest we've had on the podcast who started an alcoholic drink. Do you guys remember when we had Jake Woolmore on? He started XV Gins. I must have been absent that week. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Well, he did has you, did you just stuff. say, Oliver, that you've never heard of the, the Pura Moth? Yeah, I did. What university are you at again? Tell me your university again. Tell me the result in the Predictions League again. Yeah, Jay Walmore, he has XV gins, and it has 15 ingredients in the gin, and I put him on the spot. And asked him to name all 15. And it's fair to say, I think he got about eight. Oh, no, did he? <laughs> he didn't, didn't do <laughs> so well. He is a prop. He is a prop. He is a prop. Um, yeah, I know your product. So, look, with the time pressure, let's get into the fly half <laughs> debate. Ollie, you said you're not that involved in rugby. I'm guessing you wouldn't then like to be a part of this fly half conversation nowadays going up against Ford Farrell. Smith. No, not at all, man. I, I still watch it, and I still, I still look very keenly on the. I think I've taken a more of a keen eye on um, the England team recently with Borfield State being coach, who I've, you know, had a lot of rugby with and good friends with, and have a lot of respect for. So I watched it far more keenly recently than I have done in many years. But I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not an avid watcher, but I mean, whenever it's on, I will watch, watch the rugby. I read about it, so. I probably am not at the where I was um, 
five, six years ago, but I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely I'm probably still equipped to be able to comment on such a conversation, I hope. Just on board with me, Collie, I mean, I, I remember conversations with you in the past where you really extolled his virtues as a captain. I, I, I mean, I think I'm right in saying you thought he was a pretty great captain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do, do you... Do you consider him, and I, I know he's a mate of yours, so so these things aren't are often not easy to talk about uh, in certain ways. But do you think he's absolutely the right man for the England job? You know, sort of temperamentally, because we all know how shy he can be and how difficult he finds some of the public-facing role, which is a big part of the package these days. No one doubts his analytical capacities and all the rest of it. But do, do, do you think he's he's a guy who can? who can come through any initial difficulties and make a real fist to this job? I think it's a really, uh, I think it's a really, I think it's a really uh, pertinent point, mate. I think it's that um, Borth is, is quite shy by, by nature, but he's also incredibly strong in that shyness, you know, like he's very, he's very, he's very stern in his convictions. He doesn't doubt himself an awful lot at all. Um, he he's very open. I mean, he's he's probably one of the most impressive. I mean, I'm not. We are mates, but I'm able to. I'm very happy to offer an an, an honest opinion as as I always have done. But um, he's one of the most impressive people I've met in rugby, bar none, in terms of his credibility as a human, his integrity, um, his work ethic, his like ability to learn systems and processes that that weren't. Uh, natural to him like attacking structures understanding strategy pitch position all those things which weren't that uh, didn't come that easy to him at the start he picked up picked up very very quickly so his ability to learn is 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 incredible um i think can he handle the increased exposure that that, that role brings we will see um because i mean I'm not doubting Borfers in that, but you know, I'm, I'm only saying we will see because um, it, it's on a far bigger level from running the show at Leicester, right? As we, as we all know, it's a far bigger, far bigger ship to steer than that, and um, it comes with certain pressures um, from externally. There's a far more, obviously, far more media coverage, which invites far more colourful personalities to comment on your position, which they are already doing and will continue to do. But that's just that's just the life and nature of that role. But in terms of um, the right person to lead the country and to to wield a culture a culture and um, forge a team that plays for each other um, and feels like you're all there mucking in for one another. And that by one another, I mean the kit guys, the coaches, the guys that do the, pick up the laundry at the hotel. Like he will make sure that everyone feels a part of that, and that is something that I think has been severely lacking in in that team for many, many years. I don't think it was really there for a lot of the time that I was there. You know, if I'm honest, um, that we are playing for each other and our coaches, and our coaches are here for us, and we're here for our coaches, and let's take our gun over our shoulder and go after it. I think that that is a you know the look at the sides that have had that in <clears throat> I mean on a more close to home basis sides like Exeter and Saracens and uh, Exeter in particular who have that in in buckets are able to they're a different team now but in the start they were able to beat people far better than them through that just that culture you know like and that was forged uh, by Rob Baxter and that wasn't something that came quickly but I think that's something that Borfus has the ability to do that out of respect and I'm really respecting and understand the value around bringing how important that culture is and not just you've been picked for England I know what I'm doing you need to play for me which I think has probably been the case for probably a few years now I don't you know show me a side that's never been consistently good and successful with that approach of this is the way we're playing you're lucky to be playing for England this is how and this is how we'll play and this you know, is happens on a short-term basis but all blacks another great example in years gone by you know culture came first then they often didn't pick players that were better than the person that they did pick but they felt that that person was far more successful for the culture and as a result of that people bought in and 
good players became great players and great good teams became great teams and then won one World Cup. So I think what we're trying to get out of here is, is culture, right? And, and that culture is, is 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 crucial. You look at the teams around the Premiership and you boys will know them better than most, having been to clubs and you get the feel when you walk in and how people treat you and how they welcome you and how they talk to each other. And that is something that Bournemouth is massive on. And I think it's something that England will really, really benefit from. It just won't happen overnight. I think that's really interesting. I, th- I, I agree with everything you said, Ollie. I think that's as, as good a summary of what Borthwick can bring to a thing. And, and interesting, you mentioned Baxter, e- even though Rob is much more much more comfortable now with the public-facing role and does a lot of it. There are obvious similarities between Steve and Rob in terms of rugby vision and approach and the importance of culture and the things that you you talk about. There, there are there are obvious similarities, I think. Yeah, mate, I agree. I really agree. I think um, they will have different approaches to to that culture, for sure. I know some of the bus rides back from away games next to get pretty hairy. <laughs> I'm not sure Borfers sure would be up for that, but in their, own, in their own, in his own way, in his own very, you know, integral, respectful, open charming way Borfers will will employ that and that'll be that'll be pretty much top of his list is creating a team and a culture that wants to play for each other that believes in where they're going as a team um I I, I don't think you know I don't think he'll be doubting pardon me where where they are I mean this fucking horrific results let's not get away from that um but it will be a process. And I don't think, even though you know, the World Cup is on the doorstep, I don't think that, you know, you can't you can't judge, you know, maybe jumping the gun on a question here, Ollie, if I am, I apologise. But, um, you, you know, I mean, it's very easy to judge someone on on, on those results, right? Because they are, they are bad. They're really bad. But, you know, I've, 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 I mean, I have lots of faith in him and I don't think he'll be panicking. He will be very upset and disappointed at those results because he's a very proud man and he puts more hours into that job than I think most people around the world will. But he'll have a plan for sure. He will have a plan. That is for certain. And he will have a very, very well-measured, long-term, methodical plan. Do you think then he's got his answer for the 10 he wants in the World Cup final should they get there now? Hundred percent, a hundred percent. Borthers does Borthers does not do anything without knowing exactly where it's going and how it's going to end up. Um, <laughs> even going to the shops to buy buy his groceries, like he will make sure that is to the point. Um, yeah, I mean there, there is there is a plan here. I'm sure that the the, the one one caveat there is performance fitness you know that will obviously play a part in in how that selection goes but there will be a, there will be a plan you know like i mean i've got no doubt that he will want marcus smith to play a much a more prominent role because borthers does want to play an attacking game like he borthers didn't play in a very in a very you know he wasn't a flamboyant player but he did in the teams that I played in, he does respect and understand the value of, of an all-court game. An all-court, I don't mean, you know, you go side to side and front to back all the time, but understanding how to play and whether dry, whether different teams, different defences. He has a great understanding of that. I just don't think you, I just don't think you can, in all, with all due respect to him, I don't think Farrell offers that anymore. I don't think, I think he has a really good one or two court game. Clay, perhaps, or grass, but not, 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 not grass. Maybe indoor, maybe indoor hardcore. But I mean, I mean, the utmost respect, you know. Like he's been one of England's greatest players um, for a long time, and and I and I know that I know from talking to both that you know he still brings an enormous amount uh, to the team more than most people I think in that week. And that was a, a lot of, a lot of both as his value was not just on the pitch on a Saturday as, as a player, but it, the way he could forge a cohesive team and plan during the week. So when we arrived Saturday, like 80% of your work was done in theory, preparation, mindset, clarity, all those key things. I think Farrell plays a huge role in that for England, you know, being able to bring that clarity, uh, leadership during the week. They're all cliched things, but they're all vital in, in a test week because you've got people that 
are nervous and you're bringing people together very quickly and often against you know very pressure situations so it's important you have those personalities around you and I think he'll still play a crucial role in the World Cup but I'd like to think that if, if Marcus Smith can consistently show he's able to manage different types of game and by that I don't just mean manage a kicking game in the dry against really good teams I mean like it's just you know how do you managing a game I think it's, it's just about that it's about how do you play in the last 10 minutes when you're losing? How do you play in the last 10 minutes when you're winning? How do you open games? How do you how do you how do you work yourself into a game when you're not playing that well or you're not fit? You know, there's managing games comes in very different forms as a fly half. It's very different as other players, but as a 10, you it's very there's some very different forms of managing games. And I think he'll want to see that, but he'd also know that if they're if, if they're to win that World Cup or get, have a chance getting to those knockout stages at the at the end, Marcus Smith has to be playing well and he has to be in that tension. I think. Ollie, one very interesting insight you might have for us. Uh, I would say you're you're quite a different player to Marcus Smith, but the one thing you absolutely share is that you were labelled as the wonder kid. You know, you were capped by England before you played senior rugby. You know, you were, came straight out of Colston School in effect. I was there in, in San Francisco 2001 when you came off the bench. Um, and Marcus, you know, Marcus was identified as an 18-year-old schoolboy at Brighton, brought into the squad. So he had to wait a bit longer for his cap. So you got that sort of mantle of expectation hanging over you. And it can be quite difficult. I mean, I'm sure it's wonderful to be capped as an 18, 19-year-old for England. But that's, that's a lot achieved very early in your life. And you're still learning the game. And suddenly you're, you're not treated as a promising 18, 19 year old, you're meant to be the real, the real deal, the real, real McCoy at 19. So how did you struggle with that? Yeah, massively. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, to put my cards on the table, I think Marcus Smith is, um, it, I mean, he's the most, probably most talented player I've seen. One of the most talented players I've seen in England. Full I think. Yeah. yeah, full stop. Yeah. I mean, Jason Robinson, was athletically incredible. I think Marcus Smith, in terms of what he can do, his understanding of space and his athletic ability to find holes and manipulate space, but is is fucking wicked to watch. Like I love it. I love watching him play. So I think he's on a different level to where I was. Um, I think in terms of the of the of the pressure around that, I mean, I don't think that's affected him. <laughs> If I'm honest, I think he's. I think what has affected him is he's still young, he's still learning. I don't think having this pressure on him uh, is affecting him. I think he's just a young kid. He's still, you know, bouncing around like he's uh, like on a pogo stick, and he's still got bits to learn. But that's just that's just also it comes with. Um, I mean, having having a very unique athletic ability as a ten. It sometimes can be quite crippling for game management because Cipriani had this when he started becoming quicker. Is the danger of having that athletic ability at ten is you want to use it all the time. You want to break. You want to go after people. You want to you make you might try and run yourself out of trouble when it's probably not the best idea to do it because you back yourself athletically. You go for it. Got Cipriani into trouble. It can get Smith into trouble. The guy that managed to harness both those things the best of anyone was Dan Carter. You know, he had that athletic ability to break. Um, from anywhere but he always picked the right moment and that's why he's the best there ever was the best probably ever will be for the next he was able to marry those two things up I think when Marcus can marry those two things up and not just think I've got a wicked footwork I can make people look stupid and I'm really quick over 20 meters I can do this from wherever I want is picking and choosing when <laughs> to use that ability um did I struggle with it I definitely struggle with it yeah I think um much diff much much different environment I think I I grew up in that sort of the end of the old school era when um, like it wasn't that help, you know. Like I had people like Mark Regan shouting down my neck, and um, you know, it's just like Kevin Mags telling me to just fucking kick it up. And do you know what I mean? Mags, I'm like, I'm sure you know all about this, but those boys, I mean, love them, but they were not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were not helpful. I love two of those boys more than you know, they're, they're just they're absolute personalities. And when I started to play, you know, get my get my straps and started to play a few games and play well and stuff, they were great. But I mean, they I, mean, I understand, I get it as well. Like 
they didn't want to have to manage this 19 year old kid coming, didn't really know what he's doing, but they weren't very helpful. <laughs> Ollie, we all have our crosses to bear, Ollie, and 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 Regan and Mags were two of them. Yeah, right. yeah, they were fun crosses to bear. I'll say that they were they they always they always packed up a bus journey. Um, but also now teams are far more organized back then, you know, like it's much easier for tens to come in and nines and you know 15s perhaps young ones because there's way more structure and understanding around how the game is to be played back then when I started it, it, it was like two phases like and you didn't go over the game line in the first phase you were fucked because you had nothing organised no slow ball drills there was no kicking structure there was no nothing it was like I mean it didn't even be boxed many anywhere on the pitch in the middle of the pitch it's like you know the game's different now it's way more organised way more structured and if you have you know a, a fly half, even a young one that wants to learn and want, can take in team structure and strategy, then it's far easier for them to, uh, not easy, but far easier for them to think to follow a game plan now with, with the structure and strategy that's around. Where, where do you think, Holly, in this discussion, where, where would George Ford be in the conversation? Where do you think he is now? And where do you think he would have been but for an injury which has cost him? I don't know. Uh, a, a, a big chunk of time because obviously he played with with Borthwick at Leicester. I mean, he pretty much kept Leicester up. Then he yeah. then he he was a handsome contributor in them winning the title. And everyone sort of assumes that he's the best game manager in town, George, in terms of strategic understanding and tactical nous and all that kind of stuff. But there are there are other aspects of the game, I guess, that where he's. Where he's not as strong as Smith or not as strong as Farrell. I mean, where 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 would you put him in the batting order at the moment? And where yeah. would he have been but for the injury? Uh, man, I'll caveat this by saying I haven't watched him play in all like closely this year, but um, I think he's he's been played very very well all season. I think that I just think personally he's that player that is exceptional in the Premiership. I don't think he's going to give you what you probably need in those big games at international level. And, and I think my first, my feeling is if, if they're not going to give you that at that level, then why, why pick, why, why pick them? That's my, that's my personal opinion. Um, Farrell could do that. Farrell would play as well for England against New Zealand as he would against Sale on a Friday night, you know, like he was that consistent. Um, Marcus Smith, I think, has that ability to play better at international level against people like the All Blacks in Australia than he, than he can against Exeter at home. I think he has that, not now, but I think he'll have that. He has that because he's managed well, um, both at Quinns um, and with England. I think there's a good chance that very good chance that'll happen. But I don't, I don't, for me personally, I think I think George Smith, is, George Ford is a very, very talented boy and has played some wicked games for England, but I just don't think consistently for me, um, he will give you what you want against those, the big three, the big four, big four now. And, and the other thought following on from that then, the, the other thought that occurs to me, and, and you went through the whole, the whole 10, 12 um, um, mix and mix and match, different coaches had very different ideas about what you were, what you could be, what you should be. Um um, there were times when you played a load at 12 when you were reinstituted in the number 10 shirt and then the coach at the time who I think was Gary Gold said well um, we'll be interested to see Ollie play at 10 and um, it was, uh, and he can play his own game until it doesn't work um, so he, he, he wasn't one for experimenting Gary I don't think very much but no. so, so with Farrell if we accept that there are whole chunks of Farrell's contribution to the England side, which which England need at the moment, and there are things about Farrell that you wouldn't want to lose, does that make him still a pure 10 and it's just a shootout between him and Smith for the starting position with one on the bench? Or is, does Farrell have any kind of role at 12? I don't, I don't like him as a 12 anymore. I think... Um, but you did it one time. Uh, I think I just need to check myself on that anymore. I don't know. Did I? I mean, he's definitely lost. He's never, he's never had too many yards, but I think he's. It feels like he's lost a yard the last year and a half, last yeah. two years. And I'm not, and that, I think when you, when you, 
you know, when you already don't have enough that much zip at 12. My concern with 12 is him at 12 is when you go off that second pass to him, if you get a 12 like like um Slade, like Ollie Lawrence, who can actually play it, you can handle a second receiver because he's got such good hands. When you have a player like that who, who is dangerous, who has zip, who can threaten the line at off second pass, it makes the defence check, which gives you space out wide. It, it, it asks more questions of the defensive line because they can't leave. Like They have to get an eye on you. Whereas I think when you go to foul off a second pass, there's no real threat there. And as a result of that, I think the defence can almost, like, it can handle most things. He doesn't have a bullet pass, um, so he can't overcome his speed with 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 a flat but with a flat ball like super flat ball so I, I don't particularly like him at 12 i think it's a straight shootout at 10 uh i think that there is you know i mean i really like ollie lawrence as a player i think he needs more time to be able to and he can give you a lot i think with slade um Tulangi and I'd like to see more of Slade. I think I think I think I don't think he's really kicked on the way I'd like to see in the last year, perhaps. But I think he's another incredibly talented bloke um, who can also defend away from just having a wicked attacking game. So I think there's enough quality there in the centre to leave Farrell out and do a straight shootout at ten with with Smith personally. It's just there's um, it's just, is there enough calm in that 10, 12, 13? Is there enough at, at, in the big games to be able to like settle things down? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But the only way you get calm is by experience, right? So, do, do you think England have missed a trick? Or, well, not just England, Exeter, maybe. Um, when, when Henry Slade first came into the side, he looked for all the world as though he would be, if you were creating a perfect 12 mm. in a laboratory somewhere. You'd have a bloke. I mean, Henry's not the smallest, so he's big enough to survive the crunch. We we know he, we know he's a defensive captain down there, so he knows his onions in that respect, and he's got an all-round kicking game and an all-round passing game. And yeah. you're thinking, what is not to like about Henry Slade at twelve? Unless you're just completely transfixed by the prospect of a basher, a pure basher at twelve. Yeah, he's just going to play off the one-up smack. And then, 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 then play the rest of your rugby off of that. So Slade's played so little at twelve. I've never been able to fathom it. Yeah, no, I don't understand it either. I think it's I think the only way, like, it, not the only way, but one of the ways, like, if you like to play a wide game and you've got like you want to get someone like a, someone more creative in in the thirteen channel and try and create things in the wider channel, that can be quite fun. To do that, because have a thirteen that can no, that can that can handle the ball almost like a Josh Baxendale. Remember Josh Baxendale? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, really yeah. Charlie would play a very different defensive system. But Charlie would possibly play him really flat and early, and he'd go and create all the stuff much further out, and then just have a battering around at twelve. It's how you want to play the game, but I, I agree. Like I, I think, you know. Slade does have everything that you'd probably want in a in a sense in, in an inside and an outside centre. You know he can he, uh, he can he can kind of do everything. I just I don't I just don't feel like he look he doesn't have that sort of like does I don't know don't feel like he's had that hunger and appetite to actually have a crack at things the last year. I don't know why, but when I've watched him play, he just looks like he still looks like a class act where he moves and passes and runs. But I just yeah. don't. Feel like just doesn't I don't feel like I said that like appetite from him to really go after defenses, which which I think he used to have an abundance. Um, but if, yeah, man, I, I agree. I'm a massive Slade fan, a massive Slade yeah. fan. So I think I agree with you. I think he's got all all of the nuts and bolts there to be wicked. It's just how it's just how where he's played and how he's asked to play in that position. I think. So, so it sounds only that you'd be quite happy. With a Marcus Smith ten, Ollie Lawrence twelve, Henry Slade thirteen, is is that what we're coming down to? Because do, do, if you pick Marcus Smith at ten, does that help determine who you want at twelve and thirteen? I don't think. Yeah. Well, it depends how you want to play the game, but um, I think in terms of all-out attacking threat with and the ability to defend, I mean. 
I've always I've been quite impressed with how brave Marcus Smith is when he chucks himself into people at ten. I think I don't think he 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 doesn't want to shirk you know the heavy stuff. Um, Slade and Lawrence both are you know defend well. Um, I think you've got and I and I start with that because there's obvious attacking quality with those three, but they've got to be able to keep the door shut right. And um, they have that. I mean. I've, I'm 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 a, I'm a I'm a I'm a spectator, man. I want to I want to see some fun <laughs> stuff. So um, I, I love to see those three play. You know, they they they're exciting boys. Um, it's just how does how does how does the, the team want to play around it? You know, do you put Tuolangi back in there? I, I don't know how they want to play the game. It's hard to see at the moment, isn't it? Exactly how they're trying to yeah. play the game. And then you can kind of I think once this start, that starts to emerge, like your patterns and structures and how they play in different ways, then you, I can probably say, okay, cool, that would suit that style of play, or that person would be great there to try and fulfil that style, that strategy. But it's hard to do that at the moment. But from a pure spectator point of view, Brendan, yeah, I mean, I. I Get the guns out and get them running. I reckon that's my that's my. Vote. And you got the option you could you could bring Manu on for big minutes. Uh, Elliot Day, hopefully, will be fit again this summer. He, I always think, thirteen has always been his best position, even though he's hardly ever played there. You, mm. You've got options off the bench if that's how you want to go as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think having Manu on the bench is great. I don't think he is as effective to start. I think you get him in bursts, but I don't think that, that in bursts is good enough, really. But get him, get him on for 25 minutes to run riot and just say, you, I need five massive carries from you in 20 minutes, then, you know, and, and sometimes he can, two of those can be game changers. So I think he's a great guy to bring off the bench if, if he's mentally right in that role, having started so much. I think having Farrell there is, you know, nice. It's great to have him there from a, from a, but he needs his percent, his goal kicking needs to be better at, at the moment. Um, and his ability to close out a game, you know, like and control games from 20 minutes and and just kind of, dare I say it, play a bit more stagnant style of rugby, but sometimes that's needed depending on how the weather goes and, you know, how teams are playing. But having those options there, I think, is, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a nice thing to have. I just don't know where they, where the England management feel they're at with that, with that debate. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know, you know, who knows where they're at, but I think, I don't think, I think they're, they're on, they're, I don't think, they're not going to win a World Cup over Farrell at 10, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that's with, with the utmost of respect, because I think he's done some, some amazing stuff for that, for that, for that that team over the years, I just don't, I just don't, I just think that it's time for time for a change. Ollie, can we squeeze ten minutes out of you? Is yep. that or is that really kind of? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. All right. Well, I think this will be very on the spot, actually. But I'd love to do our quick fire question section with you, which I think I forgot to tell you about. So that's my fault. But it's literally just 15 quick fire questions about you, your rugby career, etc. So if you're good with that, then we'll get going with that before we finish with five more minutes on the fly half back line debate. Yeah, mate, fine. Cool. Nickname. Box. Best rugby memory. Um, first start at Twickenham against Wales. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Uh... <laughs> Order, order. For a few, getting my nuts burst on the pitch against Worcester. Oh, you did uh, the Shelford? Uh, no, it didn't come out. Split on the side. Yeah, brutal. And then I, I mean, yeah, but the I mean, the wider story is for another time, but very, very funny also. <laughs> Pre-game tune. Pre-game tune, uh, my musical taste was a bit different back then. Probably something involving the collaboration between Lincoln Park and Jay-Z. Nice. Post-game meal? Probably Jerry's bangers and mash. Best player you've played against? Tanu Munger. Best player you've played with? Nick Abendanon. Nice. Favourite player right now? Marcus Smith. Rugby Idol. Uh, uh, good call, good one. Probably Carlos Spencer and probably Andrew Mertens. Nice. Favourite stadium? 
Uh, start the front. Favorite gym exercise? Um, fuck. God. <laughs> uh, anything involving jumping and bouncing. Oh, interesting. Why? It's just fun jumping in and out of boxes, onto boxes. <laughs> way, way more fun than sitting there and pulling up weights all the time. Yeah, anything involving jumping and hopping and occupation if rugby didn't exist. Uh, as I feel now, or as I would have felt back then if it didn't exist. We, I don't know. Whichever speaks to you more. Um. So, I don't know, something involving traveling, something moving around the world. Superstitions. One of the last to walk out and not sprinting at, like just walking out quite calmly is always something that I tried very hard to do, no matter how nervous I was. Rugby law you would change? I mean, I think the tackling rules are getting ridiculous. Not, not in its entirety, but I think they need to be looked at. To, there's... No, that boys have to be protected, but part of the whole gladiatorial, you know, combat is a big part of the game, and that's they're in danger of taking that away. I think you you play rugby with the with the knowledge that it's dangerous, and that's part of the fun and excitement. I'm guessing you think the waist high tackles is nonsense. I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> best, best thing about working in rugby. Uh, be me, mates. Been outside. Nice. Awesome. That was very quick fire. Awesome stuff, right? Five five minutes um, very quickly. Obviously, you're, I can hear from you that you're swaying towards Marcus Smith in the 10 shirt. And I was too. And then obviously the France game happened and you spoke about England's awful results. That was the low point. And obviously Smith was given his audition and for some, he failed. For some, it was down to circumstances. Pack didn't give him front football. He didn't get quick ball from nine. What did you make of that test, so to speak? And did you think it was mainly down to circumstance? Yeah, I mean, we all, there are often perfect storms in rugby. I think that was probably one of them in the sense that he didn't get great ball. He didn't, he didn't play very well. You came across a couple, a very, very, very good French team where three or four players played abs, even even like world class players <laughs> out of their skin, even by their world class standards. If you get that, you're going to get an absolute, have an absolute cock up, you know. And I think that was one of those situations. They're probably not going to happen again for a very long time, but I don't think it's fair. I mean, that, that's the I just think that's the old England. In old England would have chucked out a player on the basis of that, you know, like, and I don't think that's fair to do. It's important to look at the bigger picture. How did people play around him? How did England play as a team? How did France play? And, you know, is he going to learn from that? Yeah, of course he is. I don't think that's, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, that game will define him, but I don't think, I don't think it's, it's, it's a personality thing as well. I think, if you're going to put someone like that, a young kid in like that, then it's like there has to be there has to be accountability and obviously performance metrics and KPIs and those sorts of things. But you have to have to think about the personality as well. You know, in England from the past, I don't think I've ever really done this that well. Is you have to manage that person well at that age. He's obviously like I don't know the kid, but he's obviously you know. He's very confident, but it's very easy at that age to, to, to douse that confidence and people need to be managed in that situation. So it's like how you respond to young players, particularly fly arse, people that have large amounts of control in a game when they lose is far more important than how you manage them when they win. And um, that's where that's where personalities and and um, and steel is like is won and resolved in young players. It's not you don't get it when you win games. Anyone can be happy when you win a game. It's how you're treated when you lose one. And um, I think that how he's managed in these situations now is really important. He's young. He's impressionable. He's you know he's going to be at that stage. This is a stage where Cipriani went you know one way or the other you know by and large. And you know he was managed okay in some situations. Some situations he managed badly, and some situations he managed himself poorly. But 
I think management at this age for the young guys that have that that need that level of confidence where they play is, is really important. So hopefully they don't judge him on that game. Uh or it doesn't sort of, you know, blot his copybook too permanently. But I think if you're gonna if you believe in someone, you've got to put time into them, you've got to expect them to break some eggs as well along the way. Are you more worried about that in the sense that so the loss to Scotland when he was at ten, he was then obviously booted out. He he then had the nine second Wales cameo or whatever, which was just ridiculous, and then didn't get off the bench against Ireland, if I'm remembering correctly. Are you a little bit concerned then that it's the former and that the management hasn't necessarily been the best than the latter? I think it's a very good question and one that I probably don't have a very accurate answer to. Um, I don't know whether at that stage they went into damage limitation mode after the France result and they were just sort of locked down, you know, locked everything down and they wanted to keep everything very, very simple and they wanted to regroup after the Six Nations, which is very possible. Um, and they think, fuck it, like, rather than... Because um, that also would have, would have been very unlike Borthis to go, fuck it, we've lost it, let's just stick the boys in. And he was still wanted to have kept an element of control and discipline, even though they were you know, they were on a hiding to very little in that Six Nations. So we will see, right? Well, there will be a lot, a lot that's going to come out in a wash the next three or four months. Um, I think we'll see an awful lot about how they're going to, they want to approach things, but I'd like to think that that's not, you know, baby out with the bathwater situation. Um, and I don't think the level of involvement that he had should be an indication as to that, because I just think that, that there would have, he wouldn't, I mean, many sides would have gone trialling young players and, you know, changed the whole team around, but that's just not Borfers' style. He still would have, I said, he still would have wanted to have kept an out of control and discipline and order, despite what had happened. So the, the, the last time I can remember, actually, and I mean, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there have been um, incidents since. But the way the way you described the perfect storm, that seemed to me to be an accurate summing up of back in 07 at the World Cup when you were injured after the first game and they had that South Africa game, and England lost 36 nil. And it's and England have lost heavily in the years since, but I can't remember a game until that France game this year where. Everything was so so great. You couldn't see after the first few minutes where England were going to win the game at all. They weren't mm. competitive in the game at all, um, mm. and that was a perfect storm, partly driven by injury because you didn't have a fly off on the field from memory. But it was a uh, it was a it was a perfect storm as you describe. How crucial is it for people not to panic after a single eighty minutes like that? Yeah, I mean it's. Yeah, it's, it's obviously crucial. It, it, I suppose it, it's like, I mean, only only the people internally know how damaging that is, right? Like, you don't know whether that's, maybe they've got into that. I played in games where you got into the week and you think, fuck, we're in good nick. And then you get belted by 30, 40 points, you know? So, like, sometimes that just can happen. And that sounds very, very dismissive and blasé, but sometimes that just actually can happen. Those situations whereby you play incredibly badly and the team plays incredibly well are quite rare you know standards margins now are so small teams perform in such a very small median these days between being pretty good and really good that those results don't happen very often take a massive international level so it's just how you react from them you know are you able to are the boys rocked by it are they are they you know, well-rounded enough to see it as just a, as I said, a perfect storm, and that we just that was a fucking once-in-a-lifetime situation. Or deep down in the squad, are people more nervous than we know? You know, we just don't know this. We don't know these things. You know, I mean, maybe you guys do as press, but um, you know, you get a feeling, but they'll they'll obviously, you know, it's not it's not beat around the bush. They'll tell you what you want to hear. You know, in these situations, they're not going to go and tell you the truth. Why would they? Um, I'm not at all saying that, that things are on the ropes, but my point is, Jimmy, is like, until you know what that the conversations in people's rooms, in the changing rooms, when they're having a beer afterwards, until you know what those conversations are like, it's very hard to know whether boys are going, fuck, we were unlucky, but we're still a wicked team, or are they saying, well, man, like that. That, that, that was going to happen. That was that was on the cards to happen. You know, you don't know, you don't know that. Um, but I mean, I'd like to think that 
boys there's enough cohesion and leadership there from both as the boys to think that you know that was just a really really shit day and we will be better and, and rugby is full of that isn't it i mean it's only just over a week ago leicester were coming home from dublin with a hell of a thump in there and then they bounced back yesterday record score against exeter i mean if, if you can have that maturity to know that you're going to have swings like that occasionally it, it's okay but if it sort of preys on your mind then then that can be a bit more dangerous yeah, mate, massively. And that, that comes back to our first conversation, you know, that's the culture thing. It's like, are we on the right track? Do we believe in what we're doing? Do we all back each other? And if you have those three things, then you can survive massive losses because you're like, fuck, we just had a bad day, you know? And then you go back to Monday and you kind of like shirk it off and you're like, that was just one of those things. But I believe in you. I believe in the coach. I believe in where we're going. That was just a shit day and they're going to happen. And then you crack on Monday and you, and you then you produce that sort of result we just spoke about. Or you're coming in and everyone starts bitching and, and actually people are saying, well, no wonder we lost because, you know, no one believes in that system or that move and why we didn't know. That's a very, very different, very, very different camp. And that's when things start to go downhill quite quickly. But we will see, you know, I think then both of us will weed that out very, very quickly. I don't think that that will be the case at all within the England team. I think there'll be, you know, he will want buy-in from the players. He's not the sort of guy that will go, this is how we're playing and you will like it or you will, I will get someone else in. That's just not his style. He's smart enough and he's human enough to want to create a style and a strategy and a culture that everyone believes in. Um, and I think... That hopefully answers the question. I hope that you know, the people will see it as just a as a shit day. Ollie, thank you so much for joining. That's been a really, really interesting discussion. And good luck with the rum. And especially, I don't know where in London you're moving to, but uh, good luck with the move tomorrow. Thank you very much. Nice it's to see not, you all. It's nice to see you, Ollie. Thank you, you too, boys. If you too, have a good day and uh, hope to see you soon. Take care, my friend. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content as 14p per day.